FYI Politics with Brett Johnson, the Friday edition of the show. Coming up on the show today, we'll be speaking with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. He's our expert on Iron Range politics, as we'll be talking about two longtime DFL state senators, Tom Bach and David Tomasoni, who decided to leave the DFL to become independents. That'll be the second half. But first, going to play back an interview I recently conducted that examines why Joe Biden did so well in the Minneapolis-St. Paul suburbs and specifically Chaska and Carver County. Here it is. Well, recently a piece was featured in the New York Times that talked about how a Minneapolis suburb, that would be Chaska, turned blue despite Trump's law and order pitch. Chaska, like many other suburbs around the country, made a dramatic shift towards Democrats in 2020 as a big reason why Joe Biden was able to defeat Trump in the election a couple of weeks ago. John Eligo wrote that piece in the New York Times about Chaska, and he joins us now on the show to talk about what happened in that town and also Carver County. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Hey, doing good here. So the shifts were pretty dramatic in suburbs uh, like Chaska in Minnesota and, of course, around the country. As as you pointed out in your piece, Chaska went from being a Trump district by six points in 2016 to now a Biden district by nine points in 2020. That's a 15-point shift overall. So what made you pick Chaska and kind of overall that Carver County area in terms of uh, looking why sh- so many suburbs ended up shifting towards Democrats in 2020? Yeah, there were a couple of reasons I picked Chaska. Um, I, I was in Minneapolis uh, for election day and, and, and really election week, and I um, and I went to Minneapolis because that was obviously where you know the George Floyd um, incidents happened, and then lots of the protests started, and that was really kind of the the, the matchstick in some ways for what what we saw across the country when it comes to protests um, and, and and issues, um, you know, fighting back against police violence and things like that. Um, and so I was I was kind of getting a sense of like, you know, how this this election was being felt through the prism of, of Minneapolis. But as we started seeing the results come in, we, we saw, you know, on a, on a global level that the suburban shift was happening across the country where Trump was losing a lot of support in the suburbs. And I was like, let me see how what that looks like in Minneapolis suburbs. Right. Um, because of the fact that one of Trump's big pitches to the suburban residents that he was trying to keep in his corner was that, hey, I'm the law and order candidate. I'm going to protect you. You know, he put out several tweets about protecting the suburban housewives of America. And so I was like, if if there were anywhere that that you would think that would be effective, it would be in the Minneapolis suburbs, given the fact that Minneapolis was kind of the center of much of the unrest uh, that happened this summer. So I said, let me see how things are performing in the Minneapolis suburbs specifically. And, And when I started digging into the numbers, I started seeing that you know, if you look at Hennepin County, if you look at the, the Ramsey County and the, those suburban communities around St. Paul and Minneapolis, those are always, you know, blue counties, but they or blue cities, I should say. Um, but but you saw them going even more blue this year. You, you saw you saw Biden kind of increasing his margin. I mean, the, the margin that he had in Hennepin County alone would have been enough for him to carry the states. If you, if you put Hennepin County versus every every county that, that Trump won in, in Minnesota, right? Um, and, and then so I, as I looked out a little bit farther, I wanted to find a place where you really saw a drastic shift. And as I drilled really deeply, I looked in Chaska 
And Shaska was one of those those rare places that not only did it shift more toward uh, blue, but it did a complete, you know, 180 of what it was four years ago, where Trump actually won that. And, and that had been a Republican stronghold for more than two decades. You know, Bill Clinton was the last Democrat to win Chaska. And then you see this dramatic shift from six points down for Hillary Clinton to nine points up for Joe Biden. So I was like, let me this is let me see what this represents. Like, why is it in this particular place? Did we have this dramatic shift that kind of speaks to this larger shift of the suburban community and the suburban vote this year? Yeah, and Chaska is similar to a lot of parts around the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. I can even think about the community where I grew up, Eden Prairie, which is right next door to Chaska. And I remember growing up as a kid in the 90s, it, was a, it wasn't a far-right Republican place, but it was definitely kind of a moderate Republican town. And now it's solidly blue, which kind of looks like the trend Chaska is going as well. As you said, it went from being a plus-six Trump to now a plus-nine Joe Biden. That's a 15-point shift, which is really dramatic to see in just four years. Were other areas of Minnesota or even around the country, did they see similar spikes like that, or was that kind of an outlier where we saw that dramatic of a drop in support for Trump? Yeah, I think we definitely, in suburban communities, on on average, there was a five-point shift to the left, you know, a five-point shift toward the Democrats on average. So Chaska would be a little bit more than the average, right? Um, I think if you look in some of the suburbs of Atlanta, it had been kind of going in that direction. But, you know, now you've seen some of those suburbs of Atlanta shift. Um, I think what you saw mostly this year was not necessarily in, in some of these suburban counties where Trump won. He may not have lost them this year, but he he, he won them by much smaller margins. And if you look at Carver County, for instance, this is a good example of that, that, um, you know, in Carver County, um, he won by only five points, uh, which and I think his margin of victory was about 14 points in, in four years ago. So so that, that dramatic of a shift is really what... Um, you know, allows Biden to kind of go over the top. So, so Chaska is, is definitely representative of that shift overall, but I would say it's even more dramatic than you've seen in other places. So you had a chance to speak to a number of folks who either in 2016 voted for Donald Trump or at least uh, didn't vote or went for a third party person. And the common thread I picked up as you talked to a lot of people in the piece you wrote for the New York Times is that for the most part, voters went for him in 2016, at least the people you were speaking to, because they wanted something different in Washington or they wanted someone to drain the swamp, as Donald Trump said. But as you write, a lot of those people became disillusioned almost on day one in 2017 when he came into office. So what were some of the reasons that people gave to you in terms of why they moved away from Donald Trump in 2016 and shifted towards Biden in 2020? I think the underlying reason that you get is essentially people were just kind of turned off by Trump's whole demeanor, his attitude, just the way he goes about things, you know, and and frankly, for some people, his racism, right? Um, and that, that was a huge turnoff for people it was just Trump's demeanor, his his entire being, his 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 whole his whole showmanship. Well, while while that may have been like charming and cutesy to people when he was a candidate in 2015, 2016. It, it, it kind of quickly wore off when it came to the to the act of governing, right? People saw that that attitude, that does not translate into good governing. And, and even people who voted for him, I spoke to one woman who did vote for him again this year in Shasta. Um, but she did say, yeah, like she really didn't like him, you know, as a person per se. Like, and, and, and she felt that that was a feeling even among her fellow Republican friends who, who may have still been voting for him, um, that they really didn't like you know, Trump as a person. So I'd say that that is kind of the underlying thing to me is that people were just turned off by him. And and, and even those people and who who may not have, um, you know, voted, who may have voted for him four years ago or may not have necessarily voted for the Democrats. I, I, I think for them, it was kind of like 
this awakening moments where like they felt that his demeanor, the way he went about things was really dangerous and really bad for the country. So this time they couldn't sit out like, like the, the gentleman I, I spoke to there, Mike Magusin, who voted for the Green Party four years ago. He's like, no, we can't leave it to chance this time. Like four years ago, he thought even if Trump gets in, it's not going to be that bad. But not this time. He did not want to take that chance. So he voted for Biden. Um, you know, an, another young woman who I talked to, she voted for Trump four years ago and she ended up voting third party this time. But but her whole thing was that, you know, like she felt that Trump was, you know, going to be, you know, this this president for the working class people. She came from a family of farmers herself, but she felt like he had no clue what he was doing. So she was like, I cannot support him this year. So my vote's going to go to to a third party because she didn't necessarily like Joe Biden either. Um, so I, I think I think you definitely saw this underlying sense of we just feel like he doesn't know what he's doing and we just don't like his demeanor. And I guess the other important thing I would say, you know, because if, if we're talking about it through the prism of, of race and then the racial justice protests that we saw in Minneapolis and in other places, I think Chaska over the past couple of years has had its own local issues with, you know, blackface incidents at the, at the, um, at the high school. It's had um, incidents where there was this referendum to build a new school and, and, and this kind of outside group came in and made it about these concerns that they were going to be, you know, teaching critical race theory and, and then that, you know, it was going to be something it was it was just basically a way to for them to advance this new equity initiative that the school was doing. And so, and so there was a lot of fear mongering around race and and whatnot and those things. And I think by grappling with that issue of race locally in Chasta, that that really animated and motivated a lot of people who may not have showed up four years ago to really consider issues of race and really to, you know, understand it even deeper. And that makes it even more of an issue for them. So when it comes time for the presidential election, when when uh, many people see Trump as someone who inflames racial tensions, those people were suddenly activated and, and could not just sit on the sidelines anymore because they saw how issues of race were playing out within their own community. Because um, the, the one more important thing I would say is that Trump got more votes in Chaska this year than he did four years ago. So let's, let's not be confused about that. The difference was that many more people now voted um, for the Democratic ticket than they did four years ago which allowed him to surpass. So I, I think it, was, it wasn't necessarily as many people turning away from Trump per se, but it was more people being animated and being activated over the past four years because of their feelings, either about Trump or about race or any other issues that said, you know, for whatever reason, either they sat out last time and they, and they weren't going to sit out this time, or they, you know, may have voted for a third party this time, last time, but this time they wanted to make sure that the Democrat beat Trump. We're speaking with John Eligo. He recently wrote a piece in the New York Times that's titled How a Minneapolis Suburb Turned Blue Despite Trump's Law and Order Pitch. He is, of course, talking about Chaska, Minnesota. And as you brought up a few moments ago, as I've certainly chronicled on my show, Chaska does have a history of many racial incidents over the past few years. And, well, it sounds like as you were talking to people, it kind of did open people's minds towards, well, what is the Black Lives Matter movement? What does it mean to them? Because I bring this up because it's oftentimes blamed, not just in Minnesota, but around the country as being a cause for why Democrats didn't do as well as they anticipated when people talk about, well, it was Black Lives Matter and the defund the police movement. But as you brought up in Chaska, that wasn't necessarily the case, and maybe it has something to do with the fact that they had to have such a big conversation after all of these racial incidents they've had over the years. So I want to get your thoughts on that and at least what people were telling you when they were sharing their thoughts on Black Lives Matter. Yeah, certainly. I think every dynamic in every community is going to be different, right? So I think Chaska may benefit in that racial conversation from being so close to a a very progressive city like Minneapolis when it comes to, you know, politics, right? It's, it's a very, you know, predominantly white, but still a very prog uh, progressive city. 
um, in that sense. So I think you get some of that influence coming down to the surrounding areas like Chasta. Um, but basically what some people told me is that, you know, these incidents that happened there were blackface, you know, where there were, there were young, there were students who were trying to put up um, posters for Black History Month, um, but they were told that they couldn't. This really got the community talking. And basically it, it, it brought some people together. So, you know, I was talking to Dante Hughes, who's a, who's a black man who lives there. And he talked about, you know, they formed a racial justice group in, in Chasta. And that um, actually in, in the first couple of years, it was still pretty tough. They were still getting a lot of negative comments on Facebook and things like that. But then when George Floyd happened, and I think, you know, around the world, really, people look at that video and they said, this is, the, this is racism. Like, like, we can't see it any other way. Even people who might have been skeptical about, you know, the blackface incidents who might have been skeptical about the Black History Month thing, even, even people like that were saying, okay, th th there's some unity around this sense of, of, of this racism being an issue, right? And so he said that, that that helped, you know, their own racial justice effort that they had started there in Chasta, the George Floyd, Floyd incident, it helped them to like open even more conversations and more people came to them, more people wanted to talk to him, you know, more people were putting supportive comments on Facebook. So it really opened up a deep conversation there that I think was important and, and it is, is what's necessary. Like if, if you just, if Black Lives Matter is just this thing in the distance that you see on TV only when there are burning buildings and looting going on, then it becomes this kind of scary thing. And, and what people are looking at is the looting and stuff like that, but not the racism that might somewhat fuel some of the, some of that unrest that you see, right? But in Chaska, they actually talked about it. They also had a Black Lives Matter protest in Chaska, and there were no issues at all. You know, people marched through the street, they gave speeches, and I think that that calmed nerves. You know, Dante, the guy I talked to, he, he said that um, he patrolled the community when it was going on, and he sent people pictures saying, see, like, nothing's happening. This is completely peaceful. This is fine. So they really kept the focus as much as they could on the issues of race and, and those underlying issues. So I think that was a big thing. And, and then there was another woman I spoke to, um, um, Amy, who, you know, she had voted for Trump four years ago, but this time around she voted for Biden. And, and, and her thing was like, she didn't really understand the Black Lives Matter movement. She wasn't, you know, you know, for her it was some distant thing. Um, but there were two things that happened. One was George Floyd. That was the thing that really like solidified it for, okay, this is like a real issue. And the other thing was that school referendum that I was talking about to build a new school where the opposition was raising all these issues and um, kind of basically fear mongering about what this was going to mean, that it was going to be, you know, you know, like it was, it was really furthering this equity program. And they, they made an issue about like some of the people who were going to be coming in to do equity training and things like that. And she said she just found that totally nuts. And she had been a lifelong Republican. And she said it just felt like people were fear mongering. There, there was like talk on Facebook about Muslims taking over the country. And she was like, these people have lost it, you know? And so for her, that really pulled her to the left when it comes came to these racial justice issues. And now she's one of those people who are fighting for it. So I, I think the main takeaway when you, when you look across the country, undoubtedly, there are there is this concern about when, when, when protests, you know, sometimes give way to looting and vandalism. That is a concern. And that is something that I think Democrats have had to address. And, 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 and it's a community by community issue. But I think what Chaska shows is if, is if, if you can really go in and, and talk and deal with the issue of racism and have those difficult conversations and not just make it a, oh, we denounce looting, you know, looting shouldn't happen, you know, like, um, it, it, if, you, if you're not just, you know, on the defensive about that stuff, and if you're actually like engaging people about issues of race, then that could make a difference. And I think that that's part of what we saw in Chasta. And if I may, just one other small point, too, we also have to look at the fact that Chasta also has been changing, you know, it's, it's been getting slightly more racially diverse. Um, you have professional families who are coming in there, you know, like, like one family I talked to, 
uh, a, a woman from North Dakota. Her husband's from France. They they met in Los Angeles where they lived. They lived lived a little bit in France, and, and and she had grown up to be conservative. But you know, being in Los Angeles, living in the city there, living in France, made her much more liberal. And so you have people like that, you know, coming back to communities or, or living in communities like Chastas. You know, people who are more maybe maybe city type people like who would rather live in Minneapolis, but Shasta is more affordable. It gives them the yard they want. It allows them to, you know, have access to better schools for their children. So you have that set coming in there. And so again, that again, like pulls it even more to the left. And, and, and when you have issues of racial justice, you have people like that in the community who are more empathetic and sympathize with that more. And so that leads to a bluer electoral outcome. Yeah. And it gives a much different picture of the suburbs than what people might imagine. I'm specifically even thinking about Donald Trump, where I don't know how else to put it, but he almost has kind of this 1960s or 1970s leave it to beaver view of America where everyone's away from the city or pretty much all just an entirely white community. And he can use many of those dog whistles like you brought up saying now Donald Trump is going to save the suburbs and not allow any low income housing and so on and so on. But yeah, as you brought up with the different uh demographic changes around Chaska, that's not really the case. And I think overall, it is just an overall fundamental misunderstanding of what the suburbs actually are now by Donald Trump and other Republicans. As we saw in Chaska, it's not that 1960s or 1970s picture. Suburbs are now very diverse places, as we've certainly seen. Yeah, that 1960s picture was created intentionally, right? When the suburbs were built and um, black people and other racial minorities were not allowed to live out there. You know, they were not given loans. They, 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 were, they were not given access to places like that. But that has undoubtedly changed as we've in some ways seen, you know, suburban, suburbanites moving back into the cities. Um, but yeah, certainly you, you look at suburbs are much more diverse now, right? They, you know, they, they, um, they are not, you know, these suburbs of old, you know, if you could even think about Ferguson, Missouri, where there was the killing of Mike Brown back in 2014, that is two thirds black. You know, if, if you look at um, other suburbs in the, you know, even even in the north side of uh, north north of Minneapolis, there, if you see Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park, those places are all diversifying, uh, you know, becoming more racially diverse. Um, so suburbs are definitely not, you know, these kind of lily white, you know, places which just, you know, that, that we think of in the Leap It's Beaver era. And final question for you here, or at least final topic. So as you had a chance to speak to many of these voters who either ended up going third party or for the most part ended up going for Joe Biden in 2020, did you get the feeling that some of these folks might be long-term Democratic voters or was it more just about getting Donald Trump out of office and they still could be up for grabs in future election cycles? What was your feeling on that? I thought it varied. You know, like Amy, the woman I spoke about who um, who really kind of came to embrace the Black Lives Matter movement. I can see her being kind of more permanently Democrat because I think she she said she was just so turned off by the Republican Party and, and kind of, you know, some of the fear mongering she heard on the um, Facebook pages and things like that. I think she said she actually got kicked off of the Car- Carver County GOP page because uh, Facebook page because she was she was uh, commenting. She was she was pushing back on some of their comments. Um, so, so I think part of it does also depend on what type of Republican Party we have going forward, right? Is it still going to be the party of Donald Trump, or is it going to come become come more back to like a Mitt Romney style, or even John McCain? Because she voted for both, you know, McCain and Romney, and and, and she liked those candidates. Um, so, so I think part of it is going to depend on what what the party becomes, right? There are some others, you know, like um, like, like the, the 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 gentleman Mike who voted Green Party back in 2016, but voted for Biden this time. I could see him kind of. Again, being in that middle, he, he kind of described himself as this odd mixture of libertarian and Green Party. Um, and so so I, I, I definitely think by no means was he enamored of Joe Biden 
for the Democrats per se, um, but he just disliked Trump. So I, I, I think I think it's varied, and a lot of it's going to depend on where the party, the Republican Party, goes from here forward, and also to a degree how the Democrats, if and how they're able to capitalize on any inroads that they're making in places like Chaska. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to follow along in future election cycles since, well, really those suburbs like Chaska and other kind of second and third ring suburbs, those are really going to be those future political battlegrounds. Encourage everyone to go check out John's piece. That's John Eligo of the New York Times, How a Minneapolis Suburb Turned Blue Despite Trump's Law and Order Pitch. You can find that over in the New York Times, that article about Chaska and Carver County. John, really appreciate the time today chatting about what you wrote. Hey, thank you for having me. And stick around. We'll come on back and have more on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, here on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Well, as we brought up earlier this week, the big news in Minnesota politics is the fact that two prominent DFL state senators, Tom Bach and David Tomasoni, have decided to leave the DFL and start their own independent caucus that moves the Senate from what would have been a 34-33 Republican majority now to a 34-31 Republican majority with, of course, Bach and Tomasoni as the two independents. So joining us to talk about what's been happening on the Iron Range and the political situation in that area is Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown, that website, minnesotabrown.com. Great resource to follow along with what's happening in northern Minnesota politics as he joins us now. Aaron, a lot of drama happening up there on the Iron Range and certainly a lot to talk about. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, glad to be here, Brett. Thanks. So as Bach and Tomasoni decided that they were going to leave the DFL, at least in their press release, they talked about the polarization of both political parties. But in a piece you wrote for the Minnesota Reformer, you brought up something that was really key. There was no mention in there whatsoever about the progressive values that they still stand for, which uh, I found really interesting. I didn't quite notice that at first, but uh, yeah, as these guys are talking about how they're becoming independents, no mention whatsoever about any of those progressive uh, positions that they still have, right? Right. I think if if you were going to say, I'm becoming uh, more bipartisan by becoming independent, you know we support mining and natural resources, but we also support schools and hospitals and all this. But they didn't do any of that. They just said how polarized it was becoming, and they mentioned the more vague uh, concept of our way of life, which is kind of a culture-based phrase that's been really powerful in northern Minnesota these days. It's the slogan of Pete Stauber, the Republican congressman. It's, it's um, you know, and it's all tied to the mining, the mining companies and the mining economy. And uh, it's, they, they basically make the leap that if you like fishing and hunting and being outside and sunny summer days, uh, you must also be for mining because that's the only way to do it. Um, that's kind of the, the, the motif of uh, range politics these days, no matter which party. And so they, they're really more hooked into that, and that's what I was pointing out. These guys are leaving the DFL because the DFL is not their home for their preferred you know, way of doing politics and business, which is to trust in these mining companies and um, let the rest fall where it may. And to me, and I don't know if you agree with this, it doesn't seem so much to be an issue of them being too liberal or too conservative for either of the political parties. This is pretty much just 
dependence that they have on the extraction industry, that would of course be mining, to make sure that they keep getting reelected. Would you kind of agree with that assessment? And if so, kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, this is this is a political move, and and that's not unheard of in politics. So <laughs> I'm aware of the fact that this is part of uh, part of the trade, so to speak. But it, this is a blindly political move. They, they're not only I don't know how worried they are about re-election, but they are worried a lot about the next two years and what they can get out of uh, the short two-year Senate term that they have this time. It's a, one of the short terms while we wait for redistricting to happen. And, uh, you know, that they both won their races as Democrats here just a few weeks ago um, by decent margins, but by much closer margins than those guys are used to. And a, a number of other range legislators, including some House members, had very close races that they almost lost to Republicans. And so they're looking at this situation saying, well, two years sitting in the DFL minority where we're a minority of the DFL caucus because they don't like this mining stuff the same way we do. Um, what can we get for this? And they, they basically bargained. I would gather, based on how things have shaken out, that they've bargained um, for a few things. Uh, David Tomasoni is the president of the state senate. Uh, that is an indirect political move to prevent... Um, you know, to prevent losing a Republican uh, Senate seat if if Peggy Flanagan were to vacate the lieutenant governor's office for a new job, which is more political rumors. Um, but um, but in addition, so Tomasoni gets the Senate presidency. It sounds like they're both going to get uh, both Tom Bach and David Tomasoni are going to get some kind of chairmanship out of this deal. So getting a chairmanship um, in the uh, in the caucus of the other of the majority party that's not the party that you just got elected on is a pretty remarkable thing and i would i would uh, I fairly reasonably assume that there was a deal made you know some understanding of what the terms are um, to to make that happen so for them uh, if you just look at this from a well what's their motive if their motive is to get you know political power for two more years while they still can they they they've got a they got a deal they like question is is it right is this the right way to do things and um what does it say to the people who just elected them as democrats here not that long ago and i think you're correct that something had to have been worked out with paul gazelka probably i don't know if it was necessarily ahead of the election i certainly would have put past tom bach given his political history but yeah there's no way they would have made this move without some sort of deal worked out with of course republican senate majority leader paul gazelka i think the question is how far back was this type of deal worked out does this go all the way back to when tom bach was ousted as the majority leader where maybe they lined something up where if republicans maintain their majority then bach and tomasoni would become independents versus well maybe if the dfl got the majority they would remain democrats but either way it certainly seems like something was worked out with paul gazelka it's just kind of a matter of when that deal was worked out yeah that's i mean we can speculate i'd say that bach was very uh wounded his ego was certainly bruised by losing the caucus leadership position to susan kent and I mean, the rumors flew fast and furious after that. What he might do? Would he retire? Not run for re-election? Would he, you know, and and take um and you know take uh, an audience with Republicans who wanted to talk to him? And he and Tomasoni have been, you know, allies in this whole thing. And uh, so it's possible, but I, I'd say it has a lot more to do with the how the election turned out, and that made the picture clearer. Um, 
the DFL failed to take the majority in the state Senate, which means Susan Kent is still the minority leader. And uh, rather than, you know, deal with the minority, I think those two saw an opportunity to put their, especially their projects, um, which the Republicans broadly support, meaning polymet, twin metals, and uh, line three replacement of uh, the Embridge uh, pipeline. Um, if you take those three things, the Republicans like those things too, so they said, oh, heck, let's go over here and get this done. And uh, that's probably the, the thinking. Uh, but, but certainly a, a, hearty, uh, a hearty Bronx cheer uh, for the DFL that spurned them, I'm sure that's in their mind as well. It's, it's very much a story of um, political power and political ego, I think. So it sounds like both Tomasoni and Bach are going to be promised uh, committee chairmanships uh, in the future legislative session coming up next year in 2021. Uh, any ideas what committees might be appealing to them in terms of being a chair, as you brought up? It sounds like they definitely want to get more of these mining projects off the ground. So any idea what committees they might be interested in? Obviously, we can't go inside Paul Gazelka's head and figure out <laughs> what committees he's going to give them. But I'm sure Tomasoni and Bach probably have their eyes on a, on a few that they would like to chair well the in under d under the dfl i mean at one time years ago tom bach was the taxes chair i'm sure he'd love taxes i don't think a republican caucus would be in a huge hurry to give bach taxes though there's nothing more uh you know both you know sacrosanct in the republican caucus than a no taxes um uh policy and uh i think a lot of republicans would be uncomfortable putting bach in charge of the taxes committee so it's, I, I would be surprised if he got that though i'm sure he would like it and and david Tomasoni most recently chaired um energy and natural resources and um i'm sure that's possible for him i don't know what the republican caucus will do but i'm you know it, even any committee chairmanship is more than these guys were going to get um otherwise so i'm sure that you know exactly which one and i'm I, it might well be related to this agenda that the republican party and these two senators share which is um focused on the non-ferrous mining and um and the pipeline and so i bet it would be things related to that and that was part one of my interview with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown, a great resource to find out what's happening with northern Minnesota politics over at minnesotabrown.com. Coming up on the other side of the break, we'll talk more about what the DFL needs to do to try to win back areas of northeastern Minnesota. So stick with us here on FYI Politics. We're back on AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Let's get to part two of my conversation with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. Great resource to follow along with what's happening with Iron Range and Northeastern Minnesota Politics. Website is minnesotabrown.com. Coming up here in part two of the conversation, we'll be talking more about Tom Bach and David Tomasoni, two longtime DFL state senators leaving the party to become independents, and then we'll touch more on what the DFL needs to do to try to get the mining issue right when it comes to northern Minnesota politics. So without further ado, here's part two of my conversation with Aaron Brown. In the piece you recently wrote for the Minnesota Reformer, you also talked about how redistricting could have impacted their decision to become independents rather than DFLers. Talk about that and how the changing districts that we're, of course, going to see after 2020 might have uh, played into their decision. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know what how it played into their decision, but the political reality is um, redistricting is, is going to have a serious impact on the districts uh, of the Iron Range, northeastern Minnesota. And because of uh, the fact that Canada is where it is and Lake Superior is where it is, um, Box District in particular has no choice but to expand outward. It's the biggest. Tombach represents the largest district in terms of geography, District 3. And uh, because of where Canada is and where Lake Superior is, it has no choice when they redraw the lines but to expand uh, westward and, and south into uh, the Iron Range, um, you know, reaching into the core towns of the Iron Range that David Thomasoni currently represents, or it could reach down into further into Duluth, which seems highly unlikely because Duluth is, has its own Senate district that's pretty compact. So that means that uh, a lot of David Thomasoni's district is going to go into Tombach's current district. And there is a chance, though maybe a small one, that David Thomasoni's hometown of Chisholm could end up in, in that district. It certainly could be drawn that way. They'll be pretty close to one another. Though, again, redistricting will be complicated with a divided legislature. It won't be one party drawing the maps. It'll be a court, ultimately. In any event, um, redistricting is going to reduce the number of House seats. There's going to be a lost House seat. There's probably going to be a lost Senate seat, if you consider you know, the big swath of northeastern Minnesota. These districts are all... Uh, they're not losing population necessarily, some are, but, but they're losing ground in population uh, to the rest of the state. And that's the, the story of rural Minnesota, of rural America. And so these districts need to get bigger, and that means they lose power in terms of how much power per, you know, per elected official. And um, so the range is, is, this is the last time the range is going to have uh, three Senate seats, for instance. And um, that's a guaranteed. And there's really only two that were in DFL hands. We, there are no uh, Iron Range DFL state senators at this point in time after this, this week's news. So um, a lot's changed. And I'm sure the calculation would have been, well, this is all going away. This is all falling away. Uh, let's get what we get, get what we want while we can, you know. And I'm sure that's the that's the equation that I can read off of the situation. Uh, and this is the best deal they felt they could get. Um, again, this is you know explaining maybe the, the the motive and why they did it, whether they should have done it, and whether this reflects any kind of ideological consistency. Obviously, uh, I, I can't make that argument. Well, that's just shocking what you said a few moments ago. I would have never thought that even 10 years ago. There will be no more mm -hmm. DFL state senators from the Iron Range. <laughs> wow, I don't know if anyone well, would have. Yeah, I mean, they, they could have, they, you could have one elected um, potentially mm -hmm. if, um, if, if, those, if those two run for re-election and are challenged or if they retire and are challenged. But Republicans, uh, President Trump did very well in these two Senate districts, uh, he carried Thomasoni's. Uh, Bach, because of the Duluth suburbs, was um, went to Biden um, because of the three uh, Mary Murphy's house district outside of Duluth. But um, the three A, the Rob Eklund's, uh, the big house district, International Falls, Lake, and Cook County, the really big one in the northeast corner, um, that narrowly went for President Trump as well. So if you add all this up, like these are districts that are going to be swing districts, and. It's very possible, uh, especially given the rising resentments and the kind of message and, 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 and just frankly what you hear around the range right now, um, these districts are moving away from the DFL. And so, yeah, that's going to change a lot. I mean, there's still Democrats here, and this is also what I said in the piece that I wrote. 
you, you think it's all like a 90% Trump supporters here. Uh, there's a lot of Trump supporters, true. But there's a lot of Democrats and progressive Democrats at that that are here as well. And I think the the bigger issue is that they're the reason that Tom Buck uh, and David Tomasoni were elected, um, more so than the Trump supporters. And uh, and they're the ones who have been basically thrown under the bus. Their their priorities were put um, under those of the, the the companies that are advancing mining and natural resource projects. Um, and 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 so they're the ones who pay the price for these two senators keeping some degree of power in their waning days of office. So let's say one or both of Bach and Tomasoni decide to actually run for re-election in 2022. Uh, the dynamics of that potential race would be really interesting because I'm guessing the DFL would most certainly run a candidate, but then the Republicans would run into a question, well, do we want to run our own Republican candidate and possibly siphon enough votes away where the DFLer can get in? So talk about what a dynamic of a 2022 re-election campaign would look like for Bach or Tomasoni. Yeah, this is well into the um, uh, realm of hypothetical. Um, if one or both of them do seek re-election, they would have to choose whether they would run as, as DFLers again without the endorsement, all, which wouldn't be that hard for them to do, or whether they'd run as true independents. Um, running, um, without, uh, r- running in a DFL primary means that someone will primary them, and they'll have maybe a tough race, maybe not, um, depends on Thomasoni uh, is probably in better shape there than than Bach because Bach's uh, DFL base in District Three includes Lake and Cook counties, which are very progressive and not as behold not at all beholden to the mining interests, um, and and so he would face a very serious uh, challenge. Uh, but Thomasoni, the range core, the Masabi Range core, is a more moderate place and. Thomasoni is a, a kind of a classic uh, good old boy. He's he's everybody knows him from way back, and um, it would be more challenging for the Democrats to run against Thomasoni, but they could, and they may, um, because of how this has all gone down. Um, more more likely, so that's if they run in the DFL primary. If they run as independents, well, then you've got a three-way race where you know thirty-seven to forty percent wins. Uh, would the people split and vote for independents uh, instead of Democrats or instead of Republicans? Or would this be a big opportunity for Republicans to say, you don't want either, you don't want a Democrat, you don't want a fake Republican, you want a real Republican, a real conservative Republican. And for Republicans who support, um, you know, the pro-life stance and who are anti, um, anti-union or anti-tax or all these positions the Republican Party has, um, you know, they're going to look at a turncoat like Thomasoni or Bach and say, really, are you really on our side? I don't know. I think you are on a couple things, but on a whole lot of other things you aren't. So this is the problem of switching sides. And a lot of uh, politicians switch parties over the course of our American and Minnesota history, but they rarely last too much longer after they do because neither side really trusts them. So that's why I, I, the most likely outcome is them not running again. But a complicated dynamic if they do. What's been the reaction from DFLers up on the Iron Range? Is there any appetite for going as far as maybe even running a recall election? Talk about that a little bit. I haven't heard anybody talking about a recall election. Um, nobody said the words until you just asked me that question. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's Recalls in Minnesota are very 
difficult to get off the ground because the the legal standard is so high to run them. It's not like Wisconsin where they run left and right. Um, so um, so that's unlikely to occur. I do know that a DFL party organizers um, that I've heard about and and observed and talked to a few are furious because. Really, the local DFL structure on the range it was already battered by the you know the changes that have happened, the defeats, um, the loss of of uh, a, a candidate like Jim Oberstar, who used to kind of be the the battering ram that took a lot of Democrats with him, um, and with with uh, Pete Stauber doing well in the district now. Uh, President Trump doing well in the 8th District and on the Iron Range. These local parties were, were really besieged. And now their two most reliable um, incumbents just bailed on them. And so they're left in the wilderness. they got nothing to go on now. they got to rebuild. And in many cases, these leaders are older, have been around forever, and they're not, they're not set up to rebuild. So really, the DFL on the range has an enormous task that is basically a rebuild. It's basically, you know, Florida Marlins, uh, unload the stars, um, you know, get a lot of draft picks and start working your way up, because that's where it's at with the range DFL right now. And as part of that rebuild, a couple more questions for you, one or more two here, Aaron. Uh, as part of that potential rebuild the DFL is going to have to do on the Iron Range, they got to figure out the mining issue. <laughs> and this is yeah, something that has yeah. been an age-old problem for the DFL that, for whatever reason, they can never seem to get right. <laughs> what do they need to do to try to come up with a comprehensive or even just a clear position on where they stand on mining? Well, there's a, the problem is there's only two clear positions you can have, and um, the the one or both of them is extremely unpopular with the other side. Mm. It's it's almost like a you know it, when when you make that your number one issue, as it is for some but not all uh, voters uh, in northern Minnesota, especially north of Duluth. Really, it's a, it's a local Iron Range issue. There's about eighty to a hundred thousand people who are really, really dialed into that issue, and then millions in this state who are not. And um, we spend a tremendous amount of energy arguing about it, but really it comes down to how much you trust these small junior mining companies with their promises and, and how they're going to develop these mines, which are different than iron mines. And, what, and you go through all that, the whole rigmarole to know what that all is, and basically, yeah, the DFL is either going to have to establish itself firmly as the party that's about diversifying its economy outside of natural resources and holding mining companies to account for their environmental impact and labor impact. Uh, essentially, the argument support the miner, uh, question the company, which was, you know, the farmer labor position back in the 30s, by the way. That's not new. Um, but uh, they're going to have to be firm on that and be willing to let people who are obsessed with these mines opening no matter what, let them, they're already gone, most of them, to the Republican Party. In a way, you can't get them back in a DFL party that has been talking about progressive values and multiculturalism and justice and uh, racial and economic justice. These issues are, uh, if, if you've got those issues and... Uh, some kind of nuanced mining position. Well, they're gonna the the voters that you're worried about losing are already gone. Hmm. Uh, they want mining and they want it now. And the Republicans have the luxury, without any environmental wing of their party, to say 
we'll do anything it takes, anything and everything, and we'll package it in a nice little phrase like our way of life, which is a cultural phrase, and we'll make that all one thing. Well, the DFL is going to have to just give up on trying to win that back. That's gone. And, and so they might have to lose a few elections before they can figure out a new coalition. And there's people out there uh, who are not as tied to the mining industry. The mining industry is actually a small number of employees within the bigger picture of the voters of northeastern Minnesota. Um, You've got to engage those other folks the people who work at the hospitals and who work at the clinics, the, the CNAs, the service workers who are unorganized and, and could use wage relief, child care, health care relief, those are the people you've got to organize into the DFL party. Right now, they don't see the point. And, um, and frankly, when all you get is muddled arguments about Polymet, who's more in favor of Polymet than the other, well, that's never going to attract anybody. That's just boring. So that's where the DFL's at. I don't know how they're going to do that, but that's what it'll take, I think. Yeah, and as you said, uh, if they eventually do find a clear position, it's probably not going to be the upcoming election cycle or the next. It it might take a few to get <laughs> nope. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's got to get a little worse, frankly. We're going we're gonna to lose a House seat or two, I think, the DFL will. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to see uh, um, more party shenanigans, more power plays, um, and that'll, you know, That'll take place over two to four to six years. Uh, But by the end, you know, meantime, these mines are going to have an opportunity to open. But I don't think they will. And that's the big um, sad irony of the whole thing is that I'm not sure how economically viable these mines ever were. And so, uh, and, and meantime, the iron mining industry is consolidating. A single company now controls most of it. Uh, Cleveland Cliffs just bought out ArcelorMittal this last month. And, um, and over time, there's going to be uh, you know, more uh, ebbing away of jobs in the iron mining industry. So even if they do open a polymet, it'll be staffed by people recently laid off from the, mine, from the iron mining industry. And, um, and frankly, that's the, that's the downside of this, is that the, um, we're, we're doing all of this discussion and argument over mining. And in the end, Mining is always going to be a limited part of what we can do. And if we don't figure out how to do anything, not only is that, if we don't figure out how to do something else, not only is that bad for the DFL and its chances to win elections, because they ain't going to win an election under these circumstances for a while, um, uh, but it's bad for the region. It's bad for the kids growing up here. And that's, I think, the argument that DFL has to get a hold of. Yeah, and as you were talking about, good luck trying to get that on a bumper sticker. Someone's got to figure yeah. that out. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, diversify the economy maybe, but those are two words right. that are, you know, that doesn't play well. I, I can tell you that doesn't play well. Yeah, it, it's vague. It doesn't really mean anything to voters, yeah. So yeah. it's uh, it's going to be a challenge for the DFL as that they've been facing for years and years and are uh, certainly only going to continue to face in upcoming election cycles. Hey, that's Aaron Brown, minnesotabrown.com. Great resource to follow along with what's happening on Iron Range and Northeastern Minnesota politics. Again, minnesotabrown.com. Aaron, as always, appreciate the time today. Yeah, sure thing. No, uh, Glad to do it, Brett, anytime. And that'll wrap things up for the show today. Again, make sure you follow all of the great work Aaron does over at Minnesota Brown. If you want the latest on what's happening with Northern Minnesota and Iron Range politics, website is minnesotabrown.com. Stay tuned. We got Matt McNeil coming up next.